everybody, this is Pastor Chad, and you are listening to the Way Radio Podcast. Uh, for today's episode, I wanted to share a sermon that I preached a few months ago, and it's entitled Breaking Through Recovery. And it's actually my own story that explains how I went from being raised in a Christian home to backsliding horribly, basically walking away from the Lord for years and becoming involved in alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, just a lot of violence and a very uh, corrupt and sinful lifestyle. And then how I came out of that and spent 13 years in the cult of Alcoholics Anonymous and the darkness that that took me into and how I came out of that, came to Christ truly and how he brought me into ministry and what I've learned through all of this about the modern recovery industry, uh, the modern recovery industry that's in the church, and the things that I learned about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, how it directly contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how we really don't need recovery when we understand the power and the perfection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll listen in. Uh, if you have any questions, I'd, I'd love to get your emails. If there's anybody I can help or that my story inspires, uh, if you're suffering from addiction or some habitual sin, I'd love to be able to, to talk to you about that. And you can email me at chad at the way, the letter R, 122.org. Psalm 119.104 says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I just want you to keep that in mind as I go through this story today of how I came to Christ and ended up where I am now. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through drinking and drugging and all that. It doesn't serve a lot of purpose. But I will just say that I did have a good family life growing up. You guys know my parents. You know my sister. I can't blame my drugs or my alcoholism or anything that I did wrong or any sin that I became involved in on my family. It was me choosing to do it. It was sinful desire within me that drove me to live the way I lived for so long. I was raised in Christian churches. I received Christ at the age of eight and I was baptized. I still remember it very clearly and people ask me, when did you come to Christ? I honestly can't say if I was born again at eight and I had to go through what I went through to bring me to where I am now or if I was born again after I left um, the AA thing, you know, 12, 13, 15 years ago, however long it was. I don't know. I do feel like I was a Christian at the age of eight, but I obviously backslid and ended up in a very dark place. And I can say that I never truly followed Christ in a biblical sense until much later in life. I identified as a Christian. Um, I went to church. Um, I lived basically a a good clean life growing up I didn't start drinking and using until my you know, 20s um, but knowing what I know now about the Christian faith I can't say that I was truly following Christ I was just identifying as a Christian because I thought accepting Christ was just something you did and then when you died you didn't go to hell you went to heaven I mean that was just the simplistic view that I had of it that's not a fault of my parents or anything it's just that is the state of the Christian church on many fronts right now um, People just are not grounded in the gospel, and I wasn't because the churches didn't fill kids with the gospel. 
So basically, drinking for me started out as something that was cool to do. Um, I had heard, uh, you know, my uncles talking about the fun that they had drinking when they were younger. And my family, we really, there was no drinking really in our house at all because there is so much alcoholism in our family. Our, my parents pretty much stayed away from it. So when I reached the age where I could start drinking, um, I just dove into it. You know, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was cool. Uh, my friends and I had a good time doing it. And I was off to the races from day one. My nickname in high school and after high school was Wild Man. I mean, I just always was a wild child. When I reached my later teens and my early 20s, I liked anything to do with danger, living on the edge, adventure, and alcohol just fueled that, you know. So it fit very well into my lifestyle. Um, cocaine use was the same way. Um, I was introduced to cocaine when I was about 22, I think, and that was a time when uh, Miami Vice was a big television show, you know, the whole cocaine dealing business was looked at as being very glamorous and cool and uh, my roommate and I got into that you know we became cocaine dealers and we started doing that and because that seemed like the cool thing to do in the 80s it was a good way to make money but to cut a long story short I will tell you that it ended up in a horrible nightmare that was very dark and very desperate and very hopeless and I was blessed, you know, early in my life to get into the modeling business and to travel. And that just fed into the stuff that I was involved in at that time. The, that business was just full of drugs and alcohol and everything else. So it just, it, it just fed into all that. But after years of drinking and using, it got to a point where what started out as being fun, what started out as being cool, ended up, like I said, being absolutely horrifying to where... The last thing I wanted to do was more cocaine, but the one thing I couldn't stop doing was more cocaine. It didn't matter how much money it cost, what I had to do to get it, um, and it ended up in a lot of violence. It ended up in a lot of just really, really, I can't even explain it. If anybody's been in it, they know what I'm talking about, but it, it, it infects your life, and it puts a web of darkness over you that just pretty much destroys everything. To where I came down to one night... Um, I had basically been missing for probably two or three days. Nobody knew where I was. And I was feeling so disgusted with myself and so guilt-ridden. I was driving home, and I was going through the city of Irvine. And I remembered a friend of mine was in a band, and he had a revolver that he kept in his bedside nightstand. And I knew he was playing in this band until like 2 or 3 in the morning. And I just thought, all i got to do is go break into his bedroom, take that gun, and just end everything and it's over. My family doesn't have to deal with it anymore. I don't have to go through the pain anymore. It'll all be over. And something just popped into my head, and I decided to go ahead and go home, and I, and I called my uncle the next day, who's just a, an amazing guy. Unfortunately, he's, he's in a false religion. He's in Mormonism, but he was a psychologist at the time, and he got me into a rehab center in Orange, California. And I remember the first night I went to this thing, I went there, and and I still had money because of the business I was in. And I gave him a check for $3,000. And, you know, as soon as you give him the check, then they said, okay, now you got to make a commitment not to drink or do any drugs ever again. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm here to stop doing cocaine. I'm not going to start drinking. Stop drinking, too. You know, that's absurd. <laughs> and I really just couldn't get my head around it. I knew nothing about what I was going into. So, anyway, I finally agreed. I went into this program. And 30 days later, I relapsed. Um, and I went back a couple days later. 
and they agreed to let me come in, which they weren't come back in, which they really weren't supposed to do. And then about 20 or 30 days later, I relapsed again. And I knew I couldn't go back at that point because they had already let me come back once. They weren't going to let me come back twice. And that second relapse, it was just like, there's no bottom lower than this. You know, I mean, what do I do now? I mean, I've been kicked out of rehab because I've relapsed twice. What else could happen? How much worse could it get? And so I really, I was just going to use and not really think about it. And while I was in rehab, I had met this guy. I had played golf with him. Um, he'd been sober for a couple years. And I remember trying to get a hold of my dealer on my, my car phone. I had one of those huge car phones at the time. Early in the morning, because I was just freaking out. And this guy called me because I was supposed to play golf with him the day before when I was using. And he called me and he said, hey, dude, where were you yesterday? You just stood me up to play golf. And I said, oh, I had something going on. I couldn't call you. I'm sorry, whatever. So I hung up. And then I called him back. And when I called him back, I said, I was lying to you. I was getting loaded yesterday. I relapsed. You know, I'm sorry I stood you up. And he said something that really struck me. He said, don't worry about it. He goes, we have a disease and you're just doing what our disease makes us do. He goes, you can't help it. And when he said that, it was like all this guilt and this remorse and all this self-loathing just started falling off me. And I thought, wait a minute. If this is a disease, how bad can I really be? It's not my fault. I mean, that's really what I started thinking. And he said, meet me at this you know, AA meeting in Laguna Beach tonight at 7 o'clock. So I went to this meeting and I met him there. His sponsor became my sponsor, and I just dove into Alcoholics Anonymous at that point. That was back in 1992. Completely believing at that point that what was read at the beginning of each meeting where it says, at the beginning of every AA meeting, they say, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. That's from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called the Big Book. There's two books that they use basically as their Bible. It's the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and another one called 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. But I bought into that hook, line, and sinker, and I thought the only way I'm going to completely stay clean and sober is if I completely give myself to this program like they read about at the beginning of every meeting. And that's what I did. And when I went into the program, I had pretty much lost my career and I started getting that back. I actually got my first year of sobriety in Tokyo, and then I got my second year of sobriety in Sydney, Australia. So I was going to meetings like all over the place as I was traveling and working. So I did get my life back together. And then I was blessed to meet Lori in my third year of sobriety. We fell in love. We ended up having a beautiful son. And for years, I maintained sobriety through AA and the 12 steps. But there was something now that I look back, that was severely wrong with me from day one of my sobriety. I was not comfortable through any of it. I smoked like a fiend. Um, I was always jittery. I was never really peaceful. And I just thought that was something that I had to live with. And as a result of not feeling truly comfortable with myself, I was led astray for years that I spent in AA. So I got involved in AA, I got into the steps, I got totally absorbed in New Age philosophy. Um, 
There was a book somebody gave me, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I read it over and over again. And another one, um, Greatest Salesman in the World or something like that. I forget. Yeah, there's a bunch of these New Age... Ogmandino, a bunch of these New Age books I got into. And then, you know, living in Asia, I got really into Zen Buddhism and Zen meditation. I was just looking for for a way to have true peace through all these different outlets that I was exposed to by being in the program. And I will say, because I was raised Christian, there was one point, um, or there was there were certain points when I was still out there drinking and using that I would go to the Bible. I remember there was there was one night especially where I was just so messed up, and I literally started hearing demonic voices in my head. I can't explain it, but the only word I've ever felt like explained it a little bit is when that those demons identify themselves as legion and Jesus is going to cast them out because it was more voices than I could ever count and they were all screaming at me at the same time and I remember I had this King James Bible that my grandparents had bought me and I started reading it at certain times like that but it was not alive to me I didn't understand it and I had looked at it to see if it would help fix me or to help me get out of what I was trapped in I just went to the Bible thinking that it was some kind of like magic thing that if I opened up the right part would help me get out of the situation that I was in. And then I pretty much forgot about the Bible the whole time I was in the AA thing. Um, I was so absorbed in, in that and the New Age stuff and everything else. And I also believe what they told you in AA. Because I remember asking them when I first went in, uh, two things that really struck me now is as being such a moron that I believed it. But I said, you know, what happened to people before AA came along in the 30s? What happened to drunks and, and, and drug addicts? And they said, well, they just died. Oh, okay. So I just believed them that until the 1930s, when everybody, somebody in history had become an alcoholic or a drug addict, they basically died because AA wasn't invented yet. And then they said, regarding church, the church can't help you. Religion is for people that are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality, which is what you find in AA, is for people that have been there. And I'm sure Charles will attest to these things. These are what they teach in these programs. And I believed these things. So I just believe that the Christian church, Christian faith, really could do, death, could do nothing to me because I had this disease and I was different than everybody else. But as the years went by and I was in that program, I will tell you that it was a constant parade of relapse and death. And as the years went by, I also began to realize that the rigorous honesty of the program was mostly lacking in many of its members. I started, as I got to know more and more people in AA, I realized that people would say things in these meetings, you have to practice rigorous honesty, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, but they weren't actually doing it in their life. It was all sort of a facade. Most had other addictions. Just about everybody smoked. A lot of the guys that were married were cheating on their spouses. Um, a lot of people were cross-addicting. I remember one night at a, a meeting in Laguna Beach, this guy started complaining that my friends and I were always talking about golfing and surfing and doing all the stuff we did, and he didn't get to do any of that stuff, so he was just sort of pissy about it, and I just sort of got on his case for whining, and he went home that night and shot up a lethal dose of heroin and killed himself. You know, And this is the kind of stuff that happened all the time. I had a very close friend that I used to go to meetings with constantly. We got down to San Diego every Tuesday evening, and one night, this is a guy who everybody looked up to because he had like eight or nine years, ten years of sobriety, you know. And in the 
at that time I was in the mortgage business and we were driving to this meeting and he goes, dude, I got to tell you, he goes, I really need you to see if you can refinance my house. I need to get 50,000 cash out. I'm like, what do you need 50,000 for? And he goes, because the Indians came to my door. They're after me. I go, what are you talking about? Well, there's this Indian casino called Pachanga by where we lived. And he had been telling his wife he was going to AA meetings. He was going and gambling at Pachanga and he was into the Indians for 50 grand. Well, these aren't the kind of people that you want to owe 50 grand to, you know. And I remember thinking, Mr. Spiritual? I mean, dude, you sit in these meetings and talk about the steps and how you got it all together, and you're lying to your wife, and you're going to the casino, and now you're into it for 50 grand. I mean, remember that just threw me for a loop, you know. So he was all messed up. Like I said, everybody smoked. Guys were involved in adultery. A lot of people were caught in lies. There was a lot of closet homosexuality. My first sponsor, uh, it, it became discovered after three or four years that this guy was sponsoring like 15 or 20 guys. We figured out that he was a closet homosexual. And he was probably a pedophile. He always wanted to be involved with younger and younger guys. And then we started comparing notes and realized that this guy's story was probably not even true. He probably wasn't even an alcoholic. He was just in the, the program to be exposed to guys. So these kind of things are very, very common. I knew another guy in Laguna Beach who sponsored about 25 young guys, and the requirement was as soon as he started sponsoring you, you took him to the bank, and he became a signer in your checking account. I mean, that was the control that was going on in this program that I didn't even question. And then the thing that really hit me in the gut, I think, and still bothers me a lot, is Lori had a good friend named Laura, and uh, she wanted us to go to the beach with her and her new boyfriend one, one Saturday afternoon or Saturday. And we went, and uh, his name was Tio. And when this guy and I met, we were just like brothers from the time we met. I mean, after a couple hours, it's like I'd known him forever. The guy was the coolest guy. He was in perfect shape. He looked like Christopher Reeves in Superman. I mean, literally. He had the black hair and everything. And he was just the, the nicest guy, the funnest guy to be around. Um, but after we got to know each other and he spent more time with his girlfriend, she became concerned that he had some kind of a drug problem. She said, there's something he's doing that, that uh, is not right. And she said he had a little black bag. She didn't know what was in it. Um, so I confronted him. And he had told me that he was taking these painkillers because of some damage he'd done to his knees, uh, snow skiing. But as I got to know him more and more, it became apparent to me that he was probably, he was doing heroin. And so I told him, I said, you know, go to these meetings with me. I've been through the same kind of thing. It'll help you. So I took him to these AA meetings, and he hated them. We went to two or three uh, different meetings for a couple weeks, and every time we'd leave, he goes, dude, I'm just, I'm not like these people. They just sit around and complain, they smoke, none of them are in shape. He goes, I don't want anything to do with this, you know. So I didn't know what to do, you know, to help him. And um, I think it was Wyatt's four-year birthday party. We did this big pirate-themed party at this park, and Tio came and helped us set it up, and we had a bunch of people there, and then we went out to dinner after the party, and something was not right with him. I knew something was off. And then that night, about 2 or 2.30 in the morning, his girlfriend called, and his roommate had heard a thump, and he had overdosed and hit the floor and died. And he was maybe 30 years old, you know. That still bothers me to this day, because I still look at that and I think, 
here was a guy who was so screwed up, and instead of taking him into the gospel of Jesus Christ, I took him to this ridiculous program. And he died in that. You see what I'm saying? And those are one of those things I don't think I'm going to understand why it had to happen in such a way until I'm with the Lord. But I'll always regret the fact. And I'll always have a special anger against AA because of the fact that I took him to that instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what should have happened. So anyway, at about the 11-year mark, um, I hit a very dark place. And my uncle, who's a psychologist, recommended that I start seeing a psychiatrist um, because I just couldn't get any peace. So I went to these psychiatrists, and they diagnosed me with um, bipolar, ADD, ADHD, manic depressive, and they started pumping me full of these psych meds. And they just screwed me up more than anything. Um, I became like a zombie, you know, walking around. And that really scared me because I thought, okay, now I've got 11 or 12 years sober, and I just keep dropping down further and further. I'm in a darker place than when I first started. You know, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? So anyway, after this happened, I was taking these psych meds, trying to figure out a way forward. And I was going to that meeting down in San Diego uh, with my friend at this guy's house. He lived by San Diego Airport, and he had this cool little house at the end of a cul-de-sac. It was like a little cabin, and there was like 10 or 11 of us that had been going there for two or three years. It was a private meeting every Tuesday evening at this guy Paul's house. And one evening, we show up, and Paul, who was a very neat guy, his house was always perfectly clean. He was always well-kept. We walked in, and I noticed that his chair he sat in had cigarette holes in it. His floor was dirty. He was unshaven. We're like, Paul, what is going on? You know, and he goes, i got to tell you guys. And he had nine years clean at the time. He says, I, I've been relapsing on dust-off. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, the stuff you clean your keyboard with. I've been snorting it. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I'd been so clean for 11 years at this time. I'm like, I don't even know you could get high off that stuff. So I don't even think we took it seriously because none of us really got what he was talking about. We went back the next week, and we walked in, and he was in a semi-catatonic state, and the floor was covered with dust-off cans, and he looked terrible to the point where he was shaking so bad we took him to the hospital. And he didn't have insurance, so we basically had to bring him back home. So I called my uncle, and I said, do you know anything about this? Huh? And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's horrific. He said within a couple weeks he will start losing his eyesight and it will begin to deteriorate his brain and he will go insane. You know. So over the next couple of weeks, we did everything we could to help Paul and he didn't want help. It got to the point where we showed up one day and you couldn't even see the floor. There were so many dust-off cans. We filled up nine trash bags full of dust-off cans. So he had this little Mercedes. We went and let the air out of his tire so he couldn't get to office max to get more dust off. We came back the next day, and he had been driving his Mercedes on the rims to go get dust off. So shortly after that, um, Lori and Wyatt and I were going down to Mexico, to Tijuana, because we had a, a guy that we bought products from down there. And we stopped at his house, and I, we pulled up. The front door was open. I could hear the TV. I walked in. It was just a mess, and he was just laying on the bed. And I said, dude, what are you going to do? He goes, I don't care anymore. He goes, I don't care if I die or if I live, he goes, I'm so sick of the depression. He goes, I'm clean and sober, but I'm so depressed all the time, and I'm just sick of it, so just leave me alone and get out of here. And I thought, man, what am I going to do? You know. So the next Tuesday, 
all the guys went to his house, and he was he was belligerent. He didn't want us in his house. He didn't want anything to do with us. Um, he basically said, just leave me alone and don't come back anymore. And that was the night. This is the way God works that blows me away because that was the night that I was set free from Alcoholics Anonymous and my Lord, the Lord set my heart to start following Him <laughs> because I didn't plan this. All My business contacts were all in AA and the 12 Steps. Everything I did was built around it. I'd been in it for 11 or 12 years. But something, I just stood up as Paul was telling us to get out of his house and I looked around the room and I said, you guys, I said, I'm done. I said, I'm so sick of the relapses. I'm so sick of people dying. I'm so sick of working these steps. I'm sick of being on medications. I said, there's got to be something better than this. I said, I'm not coming back. And I walked out the door of that meeting and I have not stepped foot in those rooms and going on like 14, 15 years. And I never, yeah, praise the Lord. I never planned on doing that. It was the weirdest thing. It was like, you're going to just walk away from your old life and you're going to start following me. That's literally, it was like Jesus took me by the shoulders and said, now you're going to find out what the truth is. So even though I had grown up in Christian churches, what I soon found out is that I had never gained or attained to a true, thorough understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I didn't have a thorough understanding of the gospel until I was freed from AA and the Lord led me into his word and instilled a hunger for it within me. But I did find out that there is one thing in Alcoholics Anonymous teaches that I do believe to be true. And you will see it on their, when you go to their meetings, it'll say it if it's in a clubhouse, it'll say the truth will set you free. And when I found out the truth of what AA was really all about and what recovery was really all about, I was set free from it through Jesus Christ. So that was one thing that was true, but not in the sense that they think. So anyway, I left, and I got rid of the meds. I stopped taking all the meds and everything, and I started desiring to seek the Lord and to learn what the truth of Him is and to follow Him. You see? And this is when God started doing things that I still totally praise Him for. Uh, we were going to a church at the time, and they were having a a missions conference and after we left the, the service we went outside and they had all these tables from these missionaries outside and we walked by this one table and this little Indian man was standing there and he said do you want a free book and I said sure so he gave me this book and this book was called Revolution and World Missions so we went home and I started reading it and I just read it straight through and then I got to the back and it talked about the author and it introduced K.P. Yohan and the president of Gospel for Asia I'm like that's the guy that handed me the book I didn't realize he was the author. But what blew me away about that book is it spoke about things in the Christian faith that I had never known about. His passion and his desire for the gospel were so uh, overwhelming for him that he had to be sold out for Christ and doing everything he could to win souls for Christ in India. And when I read that book, I just thought, I will never be comfortable unless I'm in ministry. I just knew it. I thought, I have got to have the fire that this man has. So I made an appointment with the pastor of the church because I was convinced we needed to sell everything and start going on missions and everything. And luckily this pastor said, you know, back it down a couple notches, just slow down, study, just sort of see where the Lord leads. I mean, I was literally ready just to, to dive in because I really looked at myself and I thought all the years I spent living overseas as a selfish American 
just indulging, you know, and making all the money I could, what a waste that was. I want to go back and share the gospel with people around the world. So anyway, this pastor gave me the, the wise counsel to just sort of slow down and see what the Lord was going to do. So basically, I spent tons of time praying, studying and reading, praying, studying and reading because I wanted to know what the truth of the gospel is. And this is when everything really started becoming interesting to me because as I studied the word, I began to see how severely misled I had been through AA and all of the other false teachings that I had been drawn into. I came to see that Alcoholics Anonymous is in direct contradiction to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'll just give you some examples of this. And what blows me away about this is how I could literally read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous constantly for 11 or 12 years to where I could almost recite the first 165 pages, which is the main body of it, and the 12 and 12 I had sat in meeting after meeting working through with guys, but claiming to be a Christian, I didn't see this. Page 58 of the big book, or a portion, uh, the big book, chapter 5, from above that I shared earlier, says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. You hear that at the beginning of every AA meeting. What's the greatest commandment? Mark 12.30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's quoting Deuteronomy 5. How do you reconcile those two teachings? Give yourself to this program, or love the the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you do that with two separate things? So you've got a huge issue there. On page 58 of 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, a direct insult to and denial of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins is made. The claim is made on that page that our moral inventory had persuaded us that all-round forgiveness was desirable, but it was only when we resolutely tackled step five that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it to. How many times have I read that? As a Christian, that's beyond a red flag. Your whole vision should go red when you read something like that. Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Acts 4, 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So you have a direct contradiction of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ right there on page 58. At most Alcoholics Anonymous or other 12-step meetings, the Lord's Prayer is recited aloud by the entire group. This one blows me away. Because if I went to an AA meeting tonight and I started mentioning Jesus Christ, they would hiss at me. They would say, we don't talk about that here. They hate the idea of Jesus Christ. But at the end of it, they all hold hands and recite the Lord's Prayer. Explain that. It makes no sense. But this is an insult to Jesus Christ because his holy prayer is recited by those in the room that deny him and participate in the false religion of AA that denies his divinity. It is also in direct defiance of the command to Jesus' followers to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So you're gathering in a worship ceremony with unbelievers and then it's not bad enough, you actually recite the Lord's Prayer. How bad is that? 
2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? As Christians, we are set apart for the gospel. Ecumenicalism is not part of the Christian faith. You see? Interfaith efforts are contrary to doctrine. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Bill Wilson, the man that wrote the AA program in the 12 Steps, contradicts Christ by rejecting the truth that Jesus taught in John 14, 6, and instead claiming on page 98 of 12 Steps and 12 Traditions that now and then we may be granted a glimpse of that ultimate reality which is God's kingdom, and we will be conformed and assured that our own destiny in that realm will be secure for so long as we try, however falteringly, to find and do the will of our own Creator. Reconciliation with the Father without Jesus Christ. Right there. Once again, the gospel is contradicted in the book 12 Steps and 12 Traditions when the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is completely denied on page 34 of that book, which states, like all the remaining steps, step three calls for affirmative action. For it is only by action that we can cut away the self-will which has always blocked the entry of God, or, if you like, a higher power into our lives. Faith, to be sure, is necessary... But faith alone can avail nothing. We can have faith, yet keep God out of our lives. Therefore, our problem now becomes just how and by what specific means shall we be able to let him in. Step three represents our first attempt to do this. What does that even mean? That's the most absurd thing. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 3, 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see the severe issues here? It's horrifying. Colossians 2, 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. That verse applies directly to what happened to me through the philosophy and the deception of Alcoholics Anonymous and all the other stuff I was trapped in. It's exactly where I ended up, is what that verse talks about. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now this sounds far-fetched, and I've shared it with you guys before, but it is common knowledge in AA history that Bill Wilson, during the 30s, when he was writing the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, communed with demonic spirits via a Ouija board in his house in Akron, Ohio. There is a search on, as we speak, people trying to find that Ouija board because it'll be worth so much money. AA buffs want to find it and sell it. And he talks about the different um, spirits that he supposedly communed with. So with that in mind, I often get the question, okay, that's AA. Is Celebrate Recovery biblical? Because Celebrate Recovery is based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So is Celebrate Recovery acceptable in a Christian context? And the answer is no. 
And I'll tell you why. This one thing disqualifies it because it was founded on erroneous teachings right from the very beginning. When, when uh, Rick Warren was launching the Celebrate Recovery program, a guy named John Baker wrote it. Rick Warren helped market it and approved it for the church. He did a series of sermons on recovery. And in those series of sermons, to launch Celebrate Recovery, Rick Warren said, and this is a quote, In 1935, a couple of guys, he's referring to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, the two founders of AA, formulated, based upon the scriptures, what are known as the classic 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and used by hundreds of other recovery groups. 20 million Americans are in a recovery group every week, and there are 500,000 recovery group groups. The basis is God's word. So he said, based upon the scriptures, and the basis is God's word. So when he preached that, he was either lying or he was ignorant and never took the time to research what he was promoting. You see? So in my opinion, because it's based on the 12 steps of AA, because it was launched with a lie, it's disqualified right from the beginning. It's not needed. But what also happened to me as I was growing and I was discovering these things is I came to see that the disease concept that I had believed for so long was a lie. My addiction was not a disease. It was sin. This is huge for us to understand. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So right there in verse 21, drunkenness, alcoholism. In verse 20, idolatry, AA teaches you to have a God of your own understanding, a conceptualized God, which is idolatry, followed by sorcery, which is in Greek, the word is pharmakia, and if you look at the explanation of the word pharmakia in Greek, it talks about what? Pharmaceutical influence. So you've got drug addiction and alcoholism listed right there as sin. And then you have to understand how sin works. James 1, 14 through 15 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Then when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So back in 92, when that guy on the phone said, Dude, you're sick. you got a disease. You're just doing what we do because of our disease. And all that guilt and that remorse slipped away. Because I thought, well, if I have a disease, this isn't my fault. I just got to get my disease, what? Treated. I got to go to treatment. You see? But what happened is the guilt and remorse that had been pushed aside through a false belief in the disease concept came back at this time, along with the realization that I had been claiming to be a Christian all those years, yet I was entrenched in idolatry, occultism, humanism, secularism, new age thought through an ill-founded faith in the heretical program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So all that original guilt and remorse came back because I realized I had been sinning. I wasn't diseased. And on top of it, (coughs) I was being totally unfaithful to Christ and looking elsewhere for help. So it was worse those many years down the road than it was when I started. 
But the beauty of this is, is this is when the power of the gospel really started shining forth more and more to me. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So as these things started becoming clear to me, and I realized how misled I had been, and how far I had wandered from the truth, my desire for the truth just burned passionately. I wanted to know more and more of the truth. I never wanted to make the same mistake again, and I wanted to help other people to avoid it. You see? And this is when I really started waking up. Now, there's common questions I get asked through the ministry. Did I get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes. Did I need AA to get sober? No. Does AA help people? Yes. So what? To celebrate recovery help people? Yes. So what? So what do I mean by that? Lots of things help people in a worldly sense, but destroy them in an eternal sense. You know? Sometimes Mormon families at least to appear to really have it dialed in with their kids are all well behaved and everything looks so clean and nice and maybe we can learn something from them in a worldly sense. But if we start buying into their doctrine, what happens? Destruction. You see what I'm saying? But the reason I always say yes, and then so what, is because what is going to help anybody more than the gospel of Jesus Christ when you're dealing with a sin issue? You see? Nothing. And that's where we've got to change people's way of looking at this because they get caught up in what is it doing for people. We've got to stop thinking about that on a worldly sense and a humanistic sense and start looking at it more in a godly sense and in an eternal sense. So the more I grew in the word and in an understanding of Christian doctrine, the more I was distressed at the prevalence of the recovery movement in the modern church. And the more it became clear that the reason the modern recovery movement through Alcoholics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, and other programs is so prevalent in the Christian church is because the modern Christian church is mostly void of the gospel and infected with secular and therapeutic humanism. And this is where this ministry has just opened my eyes radically. There's a woman who's in our Wednesday meeting every week. Her and her husband, I was lucky enough, they live in Washington and they they flew through Boise to go to Sun Valley last week and I got to have lunch with them. Uh, David and Lori is her name and <laughs> she said she's, she's been researching CR because her son has been drawn into it and the other day she, she texted me and she said it was so distressing because I started looking at things to fight against CR on YouTube and she goes so many people are just in love with it she goes it's just everywhere and she, it just becomes overwhelming you know and I told her I said that's the Christian faith nowadays you know I feel like the longer we walk with Christ, the more we grow in the Lord, the stronger we grow in the faith, the less people we're going to walk with, but the more we're going to walk with Christ. It's just the way it is. And you see this. The longer you're a Christian, the more people seem to just fall away into false teachings. But the reason I use the term secular and therapeutic humanism is because secular, you cannot argue, secular teachings have just infiltrated the church. Therapeutic humanism has gone into the church through what I was alluding to earlier. When somebody has an issue, whether it's drug addiction, alcoholism, porn addiction, whatever this so-called 
problem or addiction that they have is it's no longer looked at as sin. It's looked at as a therapeutic issue that has to be dealt with therapeutically or clinically. They need treatment. They're sick, you see? And I think that term has to really be considered therapeutic humanism. The sufficiency of Jesus is mostly forgotten or rejected. And these are all the things that have been exposed through this study of the recovery industry. The authority and sufficiency of scripture is often not even considered or else looked at as archaic. You guys have heard me say how amazing it is how many pastors I've debated that reject the authority and sufficiency of scripture. And if you reject the authority and sufficiency of scripture, you're rejecting the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, may be adequate, equipped for what? Every good work. It tells us there's nothing needed beyond his word. And Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing compares to God's word. That's why there's that so what if these programs help people. They're nothing compared to the power of God's word. And it's really interesting because when you look at these issues I'm talking about, I heard an interview with John MacArthur a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about his early years in ministry. And he said back in the 80s, he fought almost this identical battle in the 80s against Christian psychology. Because Christian psychology was the big thing. We're going to blend psychology and Christianity, and we're going to help people with it. You see? And it's, do you hear about it now? No. It's gone. Why? It's not needed, you see? So it's gone. It doesn't hardly exist anymore. Consider this. The modern church is mostly engaged in a horizontal perspective, focused on humanism rather than a vertical perspective with a focus on the Lord and the gospel. And that's what we're trying to do through this ministry. The church is so concerned about people, we're not concerned about God's glory. But what happens if you're concerned about God's glory? People are taken care of, you see? things are addressed. 1 Peter 1.13 teaches this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Focus your mind completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The recovery movement in the modern church is a glaring symptom of a very big infection that has been steadily growing over generations. And it's fascinating because if you take um, Christian psychology, you take the recovery movement, you take all the apostasy and heresy that has been infecting the church for so long and been drawn into the church, if you go back to the 1800s, you can see how it started coming in. Because you had... Freudian, you had Freudian psychology come in in the late 1800s. You had Jung teaching humanistic psychology. Just problem after problem after problem kept affecting the church and moving it more and more towards humanism. You see? So consider this, and this is something I think we really need to look at. Because people say, how could it get so bad? And how could it be so dangerous? Through the modern recovery movement, Satan imitates repentance with what? Remorse. 
Satan imitates repentance with remorse. Rather than genuine faith, Satan, through the recovery movement, leads the undiscerning into a cheap, humanistic faith void of the gospel. Satan uses, this one's huge, Satan uses presumption to imitate assurance. Presumption seems to be one of the biggest issues in the modern church. Because someone says they are a Christian, they presume they are a Christian. Because someone said a sinner's prayer, they presume they are a Christian. Because someone has worked a Christian program, they presume they are a Christian. That one's massive in the modern church. Presumption. How many people in the modern church claim to be Christians, claim to be saved, and if you say, can you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ? They can't even get to first base with it. You see? I think that's what I'm going to really pursue digging into, presumption. Satan gives the misled the pleasures of this world rather than the joy of Jesus Christ. The recovery movement may help a person get their life back, but at the cost of eternal seduction. Celebrate recovery especially works in the realm of the dangers that I've listed above. That's where it resides, right there. You see? When it comes down to it, the church needs to be concerned with redemption rather than recovery. We need to remember 2 Corinthians 5 that teaches us that the ministry should be a ministry of reconciliation, not recovery. We need to be concerned with redemption of souls, redemption of people, rather than recovery. If we are, recovery will happen naturally. The church needs to be preaching about repentance rather than recovery. All down through church history, the gospel has set free the addicted, and God was glorified through it. Now, through years of secular influence, the addicted are led into a program and away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just totally away from it. Look at James 1, 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-mindedness is a requirement for Christian recovery programs like Celebrate Recovery. You have to be double-minded to participate in these things. You see? But I will say this. The one thing AA gets right is fellowship and support. Because most of the modern church is more business than ministry, the sinful addict does not fit into the business model and is led into a program rather than the gospel, surrounded by the lost of the program rather than loving, genuine Christian fellowship. This is a major problem. I have people all the time tell me, the church doesn't help the addicted. And i got to say, you're right. You're right. They're not providing the fellowship that has to be there, the support that has to be there because they're not being faithful to what we're supposed to do. This is a word to the modern church and to all those involved in the humanistic recovery movement labeled as Christian. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Single focus, aiming at the cross, staying on the narrow path. So I'm just going to close with these examples because I know people that are going to watch this are going to want to know what is Recovery Reformation? 
Why do we have a ministry called Recovery Reformation? And it's important to understand what it is. The thematic reference Bible defines the term Reformation as the process of bringing religious practices and beliefs back into line with the Word of God. And in the same spirit that led the Reformers, the mission of Recovery Reformation is the abolishing of non-Christian concepts and returning to biblical principles when it comes to Christians dealing with habitual sins such as alcohol and drug abuse. And through Recovery Reformation, we use the phrase breaking through recovery. Christ can do much more than enable you to maintain sobriety. He is sufficient to meet all of our needs in a way beyond what we could ever imagine. Please do not be fooled into believing that anything in this world can offer you a solution for any sin that holds you in bondage. The only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to be freed from the bondage of pain and pain of sin is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only joy there is is in Jesus Christ. You only must believe in him and follow him. John 8.36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The world would do everything in its power to convince you that it just can't be true. That the gospel of Jesus Christ of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not enough. The world strives to twist and cloud the truth of Christ in order to convince you that you must work to know God. That a program or religion must be adhered to or else God is out of reach. At what point do you draw a line in the sand and say, I will believe in and follow Jesus Christ and my measure of truth will be his word and I will not compromise or corrupt the truth of his word for anything in this world. When you reach that point and draw that line in the sand and you truly believe in, adhere to, rely on and follow Christ completely, then you will understand that for you, recovery is a non-issue. You will joyfully see that what the world calls recovery is nothing more than a blessed byproduct of your salvation through Jesus Christ. It's that clear. And when it comes down to it, in an eternal sense, to make recovery your sole aim and goal for life is like striving to live in the gutter outside of a palace. By casting aside the worldly concept of recovery and seeking for eternal life in Jesus Christ, we step over the gutter and into the palace of eternal glory whole change of perspective that has got to happen. That's why what I went through is so important. Because it helped to open my eyes to realize the severe problems that we're dealing with in the modern church. And the recovery industry is just a sample of it. You see? We've got to get refocused on Christ. And now maybe Psalm 119, 104 makes sense. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. As Christians, if it's contrary to the word, we should hate it. Thank you for listening to The Way Radio. You can find us on the web at the way, the letter R, 122.org, or at recoveryreformation.org. You can find us on Facebook at The Way Radio Group, Recovery Reformation, or The Way R12.2. Uh, if you have questions or comments, please shoot me an email at chad at the way, the letter R, 122.org. And until next time, God bless.